This is Sit Rep on BFBS. This week, after Libya, is Iran next in the sights of America and Britain? Also, could a network of willing volunteers at home on their PCs be the answer to fighting the cyber threat? One Taliban prisoner is living the good life, but is it enough to persuade other fighters to turn themselves in? And 90 years of selling poppies, we talk to the Royal British Legion's National President, Lieutenant General Sir John Kisley. Hello, I'm James Hurst, in for Kate Chabot once again. This week, the government says Britain is keeping its options open in relation to military action against Iran. The Foreign Office has responded to a newspaper report that the government's stepping up contingency plans amid mounting concerns over Tehran's nuclear ambitions. A spokesman has said that a dual-track strategy of pressure and engagement is the best approach to address the threat from Iran's nuclear programme and avoid regional conflict. A report in today's Guardian, which doesn't cite a source, says the MOD believes the United States may decide to fast-forward plans for targeted missile strikes at some key Iranian facilities, and that British officials have said the US would seek and receive military help from Britain for any mission. Well, joining us from Westminster, Professor Michael Clark, who is Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, and also with us, as always, our Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, if I can start with you, Professor Clark... Now Libya has been sorted out, is it that attentions are turning to Iran? Well, attention has never really been off Iran for the last uh, six or eight years, but <clears throat> um, certainly that attention is ratcheting up. And that's a natural process, regardless of these uh, reports in The, in the Guardian. Um, it, most intelligence analysts, they used to say that, um, that Iran would be nuclear capable around about 2011, 2012, but the program has been pushed back by a series of actions and it's harder to produce these things than most people imagine. But now the thinking is probably that the Iranians would be there perhaps in 2015, 2016. So somewhere between now and let's say 2015, the time of the next general election here in the United Kingdom, uh, we can expect Iranian nuclear uh, capabilities to reach a critical point. And so in that respect, the tension is going to keep ratcheting up all the time. But this particular issue, I think, is more driven by uh, Israeli maneuvering to try to keep the West uh, focused on, on Iran than, than it is by anything that's actually happening in Iran. And we're about to get the next UN nuclear inspectors report, the IAEA. Mm. Uh, the suggestion from The Guardian is this will be a game changer. Do you think it will? Well, it, it's, it, all the indications are it'll be a much tougher report. The IAEA um, was fairly careful about what it said about Iran in the past, and, it, and it, although it didn't really believe the Iranian denials, it behaved as if it should believe them until it knew differently, whereas the, the, uh, uh, the rumours surrounding this report is that it will be a lot more hard-hitting. And what's bothering, I think, the inspectors is the idea that the Iranians are moving their um, enrichment facilities from Natanz, where they're quite well known to a particular facility near Qom, the holy city of Qom, a place called Fordo, um, where they might be buried very uh, deeply so that they'd be very difficult to hit. And if the IAEA expressed real concern about that or, or, and other aspects of the Iranian program, then that would provide, as it were, international verification of what the Israelis and the Americans have been saying to anyone who'll listen, that, look, they're doing this, it's going to get harder and harder to stop them the longer we leave it. Christopher... As Michael said, actually the, the, the pressure, the concern about Iran has never gone away. But the implication of this report is that the concern is mounting and that, they're, that they are trying to ratchet up the pressure. Is it sabre-rattling or is it serious? 
I've read this since 2004. I've just been going through, or uh, this morning going through some of the times this story has run, with quite often very similar quotes. 2004 was the first time. The reason for that is that the Iraq war taken place. The Iranians were getting bit screwed up about the whole thing. The CIA then issued a report and said that within 10 years they would have a capability. It then reappeared 2005, 2007, 2009, 2010, and now twice this year. What is it? The plan, those talking about the MOD, we would be very bothered, wouldn't we, if there wasn't a contingency plan what to do with Iran. Um, The uh, timing, or the PR on this, is time for next week's IAE a report. I've seen an abstract of that report. It's not as tough as the Americans would like it to be, but then they never are. Who are the protagonists? Mike's right. Israel. Um, Israel's right on the edge on, on, on this one. Uh, and then, But interestingly, some of the six uh, Gulf Council states where they regard uh, uh, Iran as quite dangerous. Um, targets, Nantas, Fordow, and Isfahan. Nantas is enrichment. Uh, Fordown is the deeply buried centrifuges, and Isfahan is the uranium conversion place. One place they won't hit is Bushir. The reason for that is that the Russians are building it and don't like dead Russians. That, that, that is that nuclear reaction. Let's just uh, go back to Professor Clark. I mean, you, you, both of you have mentioned this perhaps growing pressure from Israel. There, there seems to be a suggestion that there's a, a perhaps a window of opportunity closing in the next 12 months to actually hit crucial facilities. Do you think that is the case, Professor well, Clark? that's exactly what the Israelis would like the world to believe. And they launched a Jericho 3 uh, tested a Jericho 3 missile uh, this week, I think it was yesterday, wasn't it? Mm. Um, to, to prove that they had the capacity with ballistic missiles to reach some of these targets. And the Israelis you know, want to keep everybody focused on the idea that, exactly as you say, there is a window closing. Um, but uh, you know, down to basics on this, uh, I have long said, and I still think, despite the hoo-ha that we get every year, as Christopher said, that ultimately the Israelis cannot attack and the Americans will not attack. Uh, the Israelis cannot do the job because they don't have the capacity to do more than damage the program. And the, the, the downside of attacking and only damaging the program would be so huge for them. It would be extraordinary if they did it. And the Americans um, could attack the whole program. But if they did, it wouldn't be a one-off attack. They'd have to launch an air war uh, against Iran. And the best estimate I've heard in Washington, I've asked people, you know, how long would you have to do it for, for it to work? And the best, the shortest estimate I've heard is 14 to 17 days. So it would have to be some sort of unprovoked air war but by the Americans against Iran. And again, the political fallout from that and the, the way the, the rest of the world would see it would be absolutely incalculable. So you have to weigh that against the fear that the Iranians may start to cross a threshold in their nuclear capability abilities, you know, sooner rather than later. That's a difficult balance to, ju- to judge. But my judgment, for what it's worth, is that still an attack on the Iranians is very unlikely. But it's easy for me to say that. I'm not responsible for policy. If you're a policymaker, you must not be seen to rule that out because you give away some cards in your hand. Briefly, Christopher, do you, do you, do you think it, it's not on the cards? Um, it's, it's, it's not as likely yet. But who knows next day? But the important thing that's going on in the Foreign Office at the moment and also in, in the Justice Department is the legality of any strike. And would it have to go, as Libya had to go, to a United Nations resolution? Or could it be a, a unilateral uh, strike? And the Israelis don't tend to take these things to the United Nations. And that's why it's 
interesting to watch uh, Israel, but there's not a unanimity there. Netanyahu, the uh, Prime Minister, is more or less out on his own on this at the moment. Okay, Professor Clark, stay with us. Uh, One of the things that has been seen as having been used against Iran already is cyber attack. Now, earlier this week, the Foreign Secretary William Hague hosted the two-day London Cyberspace Conference aimed at encouraging greater international cooperation in managing the internet and combating cyber warfare. Well, General Sir Graham Lamb, former Commander of Special Forces, joins us now to tell us some of his ideas of how Britain can improve cyber security. Welcome to SITREP, General Lamb. Uh, Before we get on to your ideas, can you explain what you feel are the biggest cyber threats? Um, I think the, the... Uh, Well, the first thing is to to, to be careful about seeing everything as a threat and then putting it into a category where uh, we have to defend actively against it or somehow this is is something which is intolerable. You know, espionage has been going on for as long as we have been around, I think, in many ways, you know, looking into other people and trying to understand the secrets. So there's a sort of legitimate sort of access into, in fact, what I call that which is in open architecture, uh, where people, in fact, Know, actively pry and, and, and therefore try and find out uh, what is taking place. If you try and adjust and change, um, therefore, how we're doing, whether it's the banking system, whether it's your personal coding, whatever the case may be, that, then that changes, ch- changes the regime. The, the problem that sits at the moment, well, whereas in the past we had very clear protocols going back to the sort of days of the mutually assured destruction and the sort of the use or potential use of nuclear weapons, the fascinating thing today is with the cyber world is that, that, that there are none, or there seem to be very few protocols. There's no Geneva Convention for cyberspace, is there? Sorry? There's no Geneva Convention for cyberspace. No, and, 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 and in many ways, because a bit like, you know, if you want to, you know, these are rather sort of un-PC, but if you want to boil a frog, then you don't put it in the hot boiling water, it jumps out. You know, you put it in cold water and slowly heat it up. So this has been coming on us in many ways without people necessarily seeing it as a real threat or a real problem that but, we should face. And therefore, in fact, in many ways, you know, it's, well, well, we'll, we'll just get through tomorrow and, th- and then we'll address it or we'll think about it. We need to probably be a little more forward and put it. Do, do we actually want cyberspace re- regulated as a, as a nation in terms of actually, is, aren't we pretty much at the forefront of using cyberspace to, to gain a strategic advantage? Well, I, think, I think, again, that, that you know, it's a bit like, you know, don't have a five-year plan. They never work for the Russians. The, um, you've got to be really careful about, about sort of assuming that you're in a safe position. You know, the article we wrote the other day on, on sort of what I call, you know, uh, on the Times about, about on this cyber and communication space is the assumption is that, you know, we, you know, we know best. The, uh, the way in which the Arab Spring and uh, the events in London and, and, and elsewhere around, around the globe we've seen, you know, have been brought to the fore is through, you know, the sort of the iPhone, the Blackberries, the sort of Internet, the sort of Facebook. The, the, there's a whole range of communication space out there which is available now in technologies which are readily affordable. And your suggestion in, in this piece is that, that ordinary people, cyber activists, can actually help keep cyberspace safer and, and more regulated. How, how do you think ordinary people at home can do that? Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think in many ways that, that the, you know, if you, if, you, if you, as always, people get drawn to the headline, which is, you know, a nation of cyber activists can keep the peace here. If you read into the article, in fact, you know, we're talking about communications and cyber in the, sort of same, in, in the same space. In many ways, it's the sort of, it's the use of communications. People talk about, you know, I was at a meeting the other day where, you know, people, you know, there was, and there were some, you know, you know journalists and, and, and people in the media and all the rest of you, and people were talking about informed. You know, we, we've now got, 
you know, information networks. We're, we're informed. And I said, no, 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 we're, we're not informed. We're just connected. And it's very different. You know, how you then inform or how you pass messages into that for good or for malevolent reasons, in effect, allows you to manipulate either people's minds and or mobilize people and bring around, in effect, what are called change in attitude and approach in a way that, that the assumption is, oh, the authority can control this, but mm-hmm. in many ways, actually, in fact, in many ways, the, um, the availability out there and the way that youth now use these, you know, works faster and quicker than, than in many ways the slightly institutional and ordinary approach of security, whether it be the police, whether it be the armed forces, whether it be GCHQ or whatever the case may be, are looking into those sort of spaces. Okay, uh, Lieutenant General Sir Graham Lamb, thank you very much for your thoughts on that. Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, still with us. Do you think that actually the the strategy, the perhaps the idea of using ordinary people within cyberspace and 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 using that connectedness of people can can change the way that we approach potential threats? Yeah, it's not static. So it's something every day is going to be quite different. I was uh, talking to somebody in Rome the other day. Uh, who is part of the Agnelli uh, organization of Fiat, etc. And he suddenly uh, was told by his office that somebody was hacking into his emails, his private emails at home. Now, his private emails at home included some of the financial planning for the Agnelli organization. Now, that doesn't seem very much, but when you start to multiply it and say, somebody works for the MOD, somebody works for BAE systems, etc., that's the level that everybody ought to simply check their Norton saver. And uh, it, it, it starts there. But then you get into this big emotive thing, the very term cyberspace. It sounds as if the whole world is listening in. And so if the whole world is listening in, what do we do? We blame China. But it's also interesting that the same guy was telling me that the United Kingdom and his lot in Italy are actually monitoring the French. We want to know what the French are. And we're doing it. We've been doing it all this week, monitoring Sarkozy's uh, stuff. Why? Because we want to know what their position is on the euro. Uh, We're not in the euro discussions. And presumably we'd be foolish to think they're not listening to us as well. Should we speak in French? (laughs) Absolutely. Christopher, stay with us. Sit right. Still to come, Roos' annual survey of defence and security experts is out today. What do military minds make of the changes brought in by the SDSR a year ago? And we look back on 90 years of poppy appeals with the National President of the Royal British Legion, Lieutenant General Sir John Kisley. But before all that, a high-level conference on the future of Afghanistan has been held in Istanbul this week, attended by the Afghan president, Hamid Karzai, and hosted by his Turkish counterpart, Abdullah Gul. It has brought together foreign ministers and envoys from more than 20 countries, including China, India and Iran. The delegates have been discussing Afghanistan's security and development once the US-led NATO forces leave in the next few years. President Karzai reminded the Assembly that those efforts have to include Taliban militants. As recent setbacks have indicated, the peace process will not succeed unless we are able to get the top leadership of the Taliban based in Pakistan to join us. Our hope is that with the help from our brothers in Pakistan, we will manage to wean away the Taliban leadership from some of the long-established networks of support they enjoy outside Afghanistan and integrate them into the peace 
process. Well, just a couple of years ago, the idea of talking to the Taliban may have seemed absurd, but since then, efforts have been made to get some of its members to turn their backs on the fighting, as well as at that macro level at the top, at the very bottom on the ground. And our reporter, Jeff Mead, has found out about just one such case at a British-designated open prison, or British-designed open prison. Uh, Jeff joins us from our studio in Camp Bastion. Jeff, can you just tell us a bit more about the story of this prisoner? I can indeed, James. First of all, it's far from an open prison. It's very tight security. It's the new prison at Lashkagar, cost over a million pounds, uh, British designed, and it's probably the most uh, secure place of detention in the whole country. Um, among its uh, near uh, over 1,000 inmates, uh, half of whom who are of which are convicted insurgents uh, is a 37 year old admitted Taliban commander called Abdul Ghani. Uh, now he is only early into a 20 year sentence for being a member of the insurgency, uh, which suggests that uh, he was a fairly key player with some serious crimes uh, to his credit. Uh, but remarkably, um, he is allowed effectively free pass to come and go almost as he pleases. Uh, he's allowed out of the gate, uh, out of the prison into the nearby town of Lashkagar. He can't stay out overnight and, and these uh, uh, visits have to be uh, pre-arranged with the prison authorities, uh, but he does have uh, free range and when we were there a couple of days ago, he just returned on his uh, prison-owned motorbike uh, from the bazaar where he'd been doing a bit of shopping uh, and taken his seven-year-old son who also is allowed to live with him in this jail. So a remarkably uh, lenient regime uh, for someone uh, who would seem to have such a, a serious record of uh, insurgent crime. Uh, and what it seems to be, uh, it's quite complicated, we can go into that if you like, but what it seems to be signifying is uh, sending a message to the insurgents. Look, here's one of your commanders, he's got 20 years in jail, but actually, you know, it's pretty lenient. He describes the jail and did to us as being like a second home. Uh, so f look at his example. It, Give um, yourself up. It, 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 confess to your crimes. Your time inside will be relatively lenient. It illustrates, I suppose, that you have to take a, a, a risk with people to bring in reconciliation. Is it a risk that's, that's working? I mean, could, could, could he not actually be going out and plotting more attacks? Well, you know, he is he is a, a, an unusual individual uh, in that um, he was actually betrayed to the authorities by his own side. The Taliban informed on him because he refused to carry out orders to conduct a, a, a suicide mission. Uh, so he, he owes his former comrades nothing, really. They betrayed him. Uh, so in a sense, you could understand him renouncing them and renouncing violence wouldn't be a difficult step for him to make. But given his seniority within the organisation, I'm led to believe, um, he still does his word and his example uh, will still carry some uh, some weight. Why he doesn't simply uh, go on one of these excursions and not come back? Well, I guess he'd be fairly easily traced. He's well known to the authorities, um, and also um, he, re he he regards himself as having a pretty good life, and he accepts that he'll have to do some time in prison. But I guess much like happened in Northern Ireland there will come a point when there is a reconciliation and perhaps an early release of prisoners difficult for the families of British servicemen and women killed and injured here uh, to, to swallow 
but perhaps that is one of the compromises that has to be made if, as President Karzai has said, the Taliban have to be part of the solution and part of the peace process. And Jeff, it comes at a time when once again people are talking about handover of security control of more areas, of course, Lashkar where that prison is already in the hands of Afghan forces, but suggestions this week that another part of Helmand, Nad Ali, could be passed over to uh, Afghan forces fairly soon. This morning, James, here at uh, near Camp Bastion, I saw 1,400 uh, newly trained Afghan soldiers take their oath of allegiance to the country. And the feedback I got from them and their mentors and trainers is that the 2014 deadline is really helping. It's actually uh, the the Afghans can't just assume uh, that that ISAF is going to be here forevermore uh, doing the heavy work. They know that the that the time is is is, is limited and is ticking down. Um, so yes, that 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 as part of that process, President Karzai is expected to announce probably in the next uh, week or two uh, a list of 17 districts and provinces which gradually will pass over to full Afghan control. The significance, I think, for British forces is that among them, uh, we understand, will be Nadi Ali. Now, that's an area well known to British forces. It's just north of Lashkar. There's been some fierce fighting there, but the violence has dropped off uh, dramatically over the, tw- over the last 12 months or so. Uh, Brit- Britain now has one battle group in that area, where before it had two. So, uh, Nadi Ali being the first uh, rural area of southern Afghanistan to be handed over uh, to full local control. It'll happen sometime, uh, uh, probably early next year, but it'll be announced in the next week or two, is a real significant milestone on this step towards what's called transformation. Jeff, thank you very much indeed. Good as always to talk to you in Camp Bastion. I'm going to bring you back in at this point in Westminster, Professor Michael Clark, Director General of RUSI. Uh, your annual survey of defence and security experts out today, and uh, one thing that interested me in there is among those experts, a split on Afghanistan, pretty even on whether we should be ending the combat mission by the end of 2014, whatever the ground conditions. And I find that interesting because there is a political consensus on this. So why not an expert consensus? Yes, it, it is interesting. I think what lies behind it is the sense that uh, the commitment to Afghanistan, whether people like the campaign or not, is fairly strong among the informed and interested public on, on defence. But the split is you know, whether we must come out at the end of 2014 or whether if conditions require a longer commitment, then we should stay in longer. I don't think anyone is saying that we must draw down more quickly than that. And uh, you know, the plan is that British forces will stay at quite high high numbers until 2014. But I have to say I was interested as well. There were, there were very few don't knows on that issue. It was only 7% on that issue who didn't know. And the rest split more or less half and half, almost exactly 50-50 for in the, uh, the numbers that were left um, in terms of whether they thought we should come out regardless or not necessarily. But I think underlying it is, as I say, this sense of that we must do the job in, in some form in Afghanistan. But uh, as your correspondent said, in some respects, the deadline could be helpful because it does indicate to the Afghans that they've got to get uh, their systems in place within the next three years. OK, let's look at some of the other figures from this. A lot of them about management of defence and the decisions of the Defence Review last year. Just 12% thought that Libya validates the changes that were announced mm. in the Defence Review. 31% think the UK has an appropriate security strategy, only 31%. 68% think it has become more apparent over the last year that we need an aircraft carrier. Now, at the very least, that suggests that the government's message is not getting 
getting through, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, and as we say in the, in the survey, I think defence officials might be grateful that they've got about a third of the, of the survey more or less on their side on most issues. But the, the, the opposition to what the MOD has been doing, the sense of scepticism that the MOD is really on top of its game now, is fairly overwhelming. And it comes out in these particular issues. So although Libya, and we, we deliberately did this survey after Libya was judged a success in military terms, so even on the basis of success, most correspondents are not prepared to give the Ministry of Defence any credit for that, or very, not very much credit. So they assume, I think our correspondents, looking at the comments that they also made in our survey, that this was due to improvisation or good luck or, or some combination of the two. And equally, the, the issue of carriers, aircraft carriers, more people now think that we need aircraft carriers than felt it last year. And yet the Ministry of Defence is able to say, look, we conducted the Libya campaign completely satisfactorily without aircraft carriers, but uh, the, the interested community just don't seem to see that. They don't believe it. Christopher, one, one of the other figures in there, 69%, I think, thought military, the military should have a greater role in the development of strategy. I wonder if that's a reflection of long-term concern or whether the, the military feel they have been further shut out by this government? I think we have to accept, and this, the RUSI survey shows this, that the the conduct of the MOD is an enormously complex operation and people actually don't really understand it, even people within the organisation. So to say, for example, that uh, should we have a carrier or more carriers because of uh, Libya is nonsensical almost because it's, it wasn't the role that we would have needed and somebody actually said you should have Harriers. Well, Harriers didn't have radar, so, you know, nonsense. But there is another side of this, isn't it? Um, military-minded people might say that the military ought to have far more say in what's going on. And I'm reminded that at the beginning of the Gulf War, the then uh, Chief of the Defence Staff, Admiral Boyce, said, because there was a thing about a strike in London, the fireman strike, he said to the Prime Minister, listen, we can do your f fires for you, we can drive your fire engines, or we can do the war, but we can't do both. And that is the sort of thing that hangs around in people's minds rather than the difficult minutiae of actually running a whole complex and a discredited ministry. And briefly, Michael, turkeys don't vote for Christmas. People interested in defence are always going to be sceptical ab about cuts. Well, they, they might be, but we were trying to ask the questions in such a way that would allow them to be supportive, even if they didn't like the cuts. So we were trying to ask them, as it were, indirectly, uh, looking for totem pole issues that we thought that they would express their views on. And, and the, the sense that comes out in all the issues we ask them, Libya and carriers and the Levine report and so on, is this underlying scepticism that the, the MOD has certainly got a bit to do yet before it's convinced its natural constituency that it's on the right track. Professor Michael Clark, Director General of RUSI, thanks for your time today. It's 90 years since the British Legion held its first poppy appeal. In November 1921, the charity raised £106,000 by selling poppies. That is nearly £30 million in today's terms. The now Royal British Legion has been celebrating 90 years of remembrance this year. Lieutenant General Sir John Kisley is the organisation's national president and he joins us in the studio. 90 years is quite remarkable. Do you think back in 1921 when they started at the Legion's fundraisers, had any idea what they were creating for the future? Uh, 1921, yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. I think they'd be proud of what the Legion's achieved uh, over its 90-year history. I think they'd be very interested in what we're doing today. And 
Do you know, I think they'd recognise what the Legion is doing today because back in 1921, the average age of the sort of people they were looking after was in their 20s. And yet most people until recently thought that all British Legion was all about old people, World War veterans, uh, you know, World War I, World War II. And those people are still important to us. But we're really focused nowadays back on young people, uh, the young people who are serving around the world in all three services and their families. So it's kind of come back to where we've come back to where we started. Why do you think it is the poppy appeal has lasted when other charities and, and, and fundraising efforts have come and gone? Yes, there was a time, maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, when there was less public interest. Nowadays, there's an amazing amount of public interest. Last year, we raised a record £36 million. And this year, yes, we're, we're aiming at over £40 million. But we need that money because we spend on welfare £70 million per annum, £1.2 million per week. So we really need that money. And that's why we're really grateful to the great British public for their amazing generosity. I mean, you, you talked about your work with... Young people, what, what about though the people who actually give to the poppy appeal, who un- understand what it is? Do you, do you think you are managing to engage young people in, in Britain today with your messages? Yeah, I think we are. And part of this is we have uh, a very uh, active and sophisticated education programme, which is now part of the national curriculum uh, on remembrance. It's taught in every school in the land. And that's been very important that the government has made that part of the national curriculum because it means that young people are now understanding a little bit about what remembrance is about and understanding the sacrifice of the members of our armed forces. And, and, and certainly, you know, the, the, the poppy is, is part of the fabric of society. You, it's one of the few charity symbols you'll see across all TV networks. And yet you, you get, even, I know it's not directly related to your work, but you, you, we've had stories in recent days of people stealing the metal from, from war memorials. Do you think there is a... a a gradual ebbing away of that respect and understanding what this really represents within society. I, I don't think so. I think what you're referring to there is is really uh, horrific. Uh, people are prepared to do that. But the people who are taking metal off uh, uh, memorials probably don't even stop to think what they're doing. They just see a bit of metal, they, they rip it off. Um, and, you know, uh, ordinary people have nothing but contempt for those very small number of people who are prepared to do that. Makes a lot of people very angry, though. But you feel the nation as a, as a whole still firmly behind the British Legion and its Very work. much so. You know, the, the, the population as a whole very much behind the armed forces. They know that the Royal British Legion uh, is, in our, in our words, standing shoulder to shoulder with those who serve. They're very supportive of us, and we're very grateful for it. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Lieutenant General Sir John Kisley, that is all we have time for this week. Also, my thanks to Christopher Lee and the rest of our guests. You can always email us, the address sitrep at bfbs.com. We will, as always, be back at the same time next week with Kate Chabot. But from me for this week, James Hurst, goodbye. Goodbye.